Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Blackwood Show. The Black, the Black, the Black, Black. Welcome to the Blackwood Show. I'm Taylor Blackwood, and this is my show. I thought today we'd do a news rundown. It is Sunday, October 17th. I'm recording this in the afternoon. It's a beautiful day here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Finally had the heat break. For those of you who aren't familiar, you know, obviously most people know that Scottsdale's in Phoenix, and Phoenix is the desert, so it's just brutally hot here in the summer months. I mean, it'd be like 115 degrees plus, literally. I mean, we had like something crazy, like two months where it never had a high below like 110 degrees once. I mean, it's just, it can be so unbelievably hot out here. It's just crazy. So it's really nice to have the weather break. It's almost like our summers are other people's winters where you pretty much just stay inside all summer and then you get to finally go outside. So I've been enjoying my coffee outside. Got some family in town visiting right now, but I wanted to break away for a second and get back with you guys and talk about what's going on in the news. Um, so you, for those of you who had heard these before, this might be redundant for our new listeners. I just got Bloomberg, uh, which I really like as a news source pulled up here. I got Wall Street Journal pulled up and uh, I try to get my news from a wide variety of sources. I think it's good to check out on a ton of different sources, especially as each source gets more and more polarized or more and more of its own point of view. You know, for example, like people know Fox News versus like MSNBC, right? Where MSNBC is very liberal, Fox is very conservative. But if you read both of them, then you can kind of get a good blend of both perspectives and points of view. And then if you find an array of news, like different uh, uh, publications on that spectrum in between extremely liberal and extremely conservative, then you can start to get a really good picture of what's going on. Unfortunately, I think uh, reading the news and parsing out what's going on in the news has become a skill set in and of itself. That it used to be that you could listen to the news and it was pretty honest and reliable and you wouldn't have to do too much digging on your own, right? You know, back in the day, they had a lot more journalistic integrity and they had a lot more people who weren't bringing so much personal opinion into the news. And I think it's really a shame that as consumers and as informed citizens, we have to do this, but you really do need to learn how to have a critical eye for the news and not just to read one publication and take everything it says at surface level. Because like I said a moment ago, most of them are very biased, have their own points of view and their own agenda that they're pushing forward. So with that said, you know, I like to use Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal or decently middle of the road as news publications go these days. And I just grab some headlines and talk you through what I think of them. I've not prepped any of these to kind of keep it casual and fun. So you guys can see, uh, like most of this show, a stream of consciousness and kind of what my real time thoughts are on these news things. So cut me a little slack if it's not the most informed thing right out of the gate. I get a lot of people who light up my DMs on the Blackwood show on Instagram and stuff like that after these news rundowns and say, Oh, you know, you misstated this or that, you know, this is something that's meant to be a little casual. Like you're talking with a friend about the news type of thing. So with that out of the way and without any other further ado, let's jump in and talk about the news. What is the top headline here? Google's biggest moonshot is its search for a carbon free future. Google CEO, we're losing time in the climate fight. That's a quote. Putting a price on nature after nine years in the Amazon, how decarbonizing makeup could lead to fossil-free aviation fuel. This is interesting. Oh, I'm so glad that's on this list of things because that's something I can actually speak about from a college friend. All right, so first of all, what this is about is about green energy and more and more corporations are taking personal responsibility for trying to be carbon neutral, which means you know everyone's going to emit some amount of pollution. And the idea is that you're going to do other things to offset that carbon footprint, right? So what your footprint is like the strike that you have on earth, your carbon footprint is how much carbon you're putting in the atmosphere for the really uninitiated carbons, what damages uh, the atmosphere and leads to global warming. So, 
even if you aren't a big global warming fan, that's just kind of a fact that that's the way carbon affects it. So corporations more and more often are, are being required by governments or proactively choosing to uh, uh, do their own carbon offsets. So for all the pollution that they calculate, that they create maybe with manufacturing a product or with electricity or, you know, a, a headquarters building that takes up a lot of room and things like this. They try to do green things to offset that. And then if not, they can buy carbon credits uh, to offset that. That's a really important concept to know about as an investor. Now there's becoming a bigger and bigger push to get to environmentally friendly and socially responsible investment portfolios. So people don't just only worry about profits and put it above everything else. They're starting to give like environmental and social scores to these corporations. And there's like a rise of index funds and things like this for um, environmentally or socially conscious investors to park their money. Cause a lot of, especially the younger generation don't want to invest in things that uh, are against their political agenda, against their uh, moral agenda or against their environmental agenda. So they're looking for ethical corporations instead of just corporations that can maximize their return on investment and profits. So, you know, obvious examples of that is they might avoid like tobacco because it hurts their consumers. They might avoid a big polluter, or, you know, some of the old big energy companies um, and things like this that they perceive to have a big impact on the world and on the environment. So companies like Google are really proactive in this. You know, they're, they're pushing for a carbon-free future, like it suggests, because you know, these mega corporations employ hundreds of thousands of people. They use all sorts of electricity. All, they consume all sorts of, you know, batteries for computers and all these things add up to their total carbon footprint. And of course, they're trying to be very socially responsible for their consumers, for their, you know, for the Bay Area, where it's very environmentally conscious in uh, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. And then even for investors now and consumers starting to care a lot about what companies they do with being ethical or being on the right side of these things uh, or quote unquote the right side. Right. I try to just stay kind of out of these more contentious things. because I know some of my listeners have different points of view when it comes to global warming or um, environmentally conscious things. Uh, I mean, you guys kind of know that I, I lean a little bit uh, physically conservative and socially liberal. So I, I tend to worry about uh, global warming myself and try to minimize my own carbon footprint and do some green things. Um, but neither here nor there, you know, it is becoming a big thing for all of you to be aware of and to start to pay attention to with the corporations, especially that you invest in, because these are becoming bigger and bigger market forces. One quick diversion. I did see Prince Harry and whoever his wife is, I forget, the really controversial couple that left the royal family, which normally I don't care at all about the royal family, but they made a big push that they're investing only in environmentally and socially responsible corporations. So this is going to be a thing you're going to hear more and more about for the next five years and probably a trend you could get out front of and make some money in your own investment portfolio. So Google's trying to get carbon free. Uh, and what, what I mentioned here before that really caught my eye, how decarbonizing makeup could lead to fossil free aviation fuel. So I'm not, I didn't read this whole article, like I said, but you know, I do want to talk for a moment about, I had this one friend uh, in college and I'll conceal his name for privacy reasons, but he's a close friend of mine. And his dad is this brilliant inventor. And he had invented like the solenoids that uh, actuate like uh, airbags and things like this. So, you know, when you need a solenoid to go off, no matter what, like in an airbag or a, a microwave door or something like that, he had created that and I think patented it. And his second company, he was really trying to pursue uh, algae fuel. So like a biodiesel that they were yielding in the desert and they essentially were creating these algaes that would, you know, get certain inputs and then yield out like a diesel that could actually be used uh, to, to power anything, right? Like diesel fuel. And they're trying to create oil and all these things. And, uh, when we were in college, just like 2011, 2012, they, his company flew the first 
fully biodiesel uh, jet engine flight, like a commercial airline flight for American Airlines, if I'm not mistaken. And it went from like Los Angeles all the way to New York on only his biodiesel. So the stuff really worked. The problem was that it was very expensive. Like, you know, think like at the time, three times as expensive as a, a regular diesel. So the thing was, you know, getting subsidies and figuring out how to make it more efficiently until uh, the yield was such that it could replace, you know, d uh, diesel and fuel and oil that we take out of the ground. Really compelling stuff and obviously a huge opportunity. What was interesting was that, you know, although it didn't make sense for like biodiesel to be pumped into every car or replace, you know, aviation flights and things like that, it, was, it worked, but it wasn't like feasible from a cost standpoint to replace those things. So uh, what they were making their money on in the meantime was they had accidentally created all these different oils and bases and things like this uh, for like makeup. So they had a best-selling product at Sephora where their, their oil was the base. Another interesting one was they created a better fryer grease. So I remember like, you know, McDonald's fries or whatever, a big a rate limiting factor in how quickly they can uh, pump out fries at one of those restaurants. And one unit is how hot is the oil that they can use. So they created an oil that was cleaner, uh, had a higher boiling or like a higher point of temperature that it could hold so it could get hotter and therefore make fries faster. So think like, you know, 32 seconds instead of a minute or whatever, just pulling those numbers out of thin air. But it was something like that where it just like doubled the efficiency and then it could be reused more that it didn't get as junky and have to be thrown out as quickly as other oil. So, you know, they're inventing all these crazy oils. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And this is an investing theme I want to talk to you guys about because a lot of the headlines are going to be about vaccines and such uh, and like COVID-19 vaccines. An interesting thing here is that they were trying to create biodiesel and then what I was just talking about. And instead they created all these other viable products that were incredibly profitable. And the reason they were after the biodiesel was to solve a major issue, but also because it had lots of government funding and grants and things like this and lots of smart people working on it. So one thing I want to point out to you guys as investors is pay attention to trends. And when you see that a government subsidizing something or that a technology is being heavily pursued by a bunch of really smart scientists and heavyweights in, in industry, pay a lot of attention to that because they might accidentally invent some other really important things that could be even bigger products than what they initially chased after. This is like true uh, throughout history. Think like World War II, for example. In uh, World War II, you know, they were trying to create all these destructive products, but they accidentally in invented all these things that are really useful in today's life. I mean, like your GPS and cell phone. Some people argue like the internet was an offshoot of military efforts and things like this. So, you know, when, when these big projects get funding, consumer grade items and technologies accidentally get invented along the way. And I think the same thing is going to happen with like vaccines. So like another uh, headline we'll move on to here is Fauci says U.S. to consider mix and match boosters for COVID-19. So they're starting to study, you know, there's three major vaccine manufacturers, Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, Moderna, and then um, uh, Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna are both this new messenger RNA technology that if you guys have listened to my podcast, you know, I invested in early. It has a ton of applications beyond just vaccines and has been a crazy successful product uh, for the for the vaccines uh, during COVID-19. But the big thing was that they got all this funding and they had all these genius people and every government and every scientist around the world uniting to pay attention to this technology and to advance it. I mean, the the trials, I mean, wh whether you're anti-vax or not, you have to acknowledge that billions of people have gotten these vaccines. So they're understanding the efficacy and the safety in them on the factor of like it would take them decades of research and patience and approvals to get to where they just got overnight because of COVID-19. And this was something I said in an early podcast for you guys. And if you'd paid attention, you would 
you'd be, make a ton of money on some of this investment advice I'd given. Cause I was saying to invest in these messenger RNA companies and companies like Moderna, even like Pfizer has done okay. Uh, and, are, and I think we'll continue to for years and years, maybe even decades to come because they're getting all this funding and all this experience in a new technology that really works and that uh, is having a huge effect and is very commercially available. They're going to solve all sorts of things and, and create all sorts of new vaccines. So even if you personally aren't choosing to get the vaccine or whatever, uh, you can still see, I mean, this is something that's going to be very viable and there's going to be a lot of money to be made uh, in these companies and investing in them because they're getting all this boost in research. Well, now they're starting to try to figure out what is the best combination? Like, you know, should you get only Moderna or should you get Moderna and Pfizer or maybe even throw in Johnson and Johnson? And especially for the Johnson and Johnson people, should their booster be Johnson and Johnson? Cause it's like an old tech that wasn't quite as effective as the messenger RNA or should it be uh, that you switch over and get the messenger RNA technology? And there's some new interesting studies coming out about how Johnson and Johnson gets a lot more protection from two shots. Because another variable in all this is that it was uh, the only vaccine to get two shots instead of just one. So that's a really interesting thing to think about too, is like the AB testing, <laughs> you know, that uh, something like how many shots they give, it makes a huge difference when you're trying to compare all these different vaccines in this case. But that's actually a skill set that I use when I do everything from like marketing to leadership and things like this in my companies is I'll do what's called AB testing. So try to change one variable at a time because it gets very complicated when you're trying to measure the effect of something and you have more than one variable changing. So for instance, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, like I said, uses a different technology than the messenger RNA vaccines. So that's one variable. But in the second variable is they also only did one dose, whereas the messenger RNA vaccines were doing two for everyone. So when you're trying to figure out why Johnson and Johnson didn't give as good a protection as the other vaccines, there's two different things to look at there and it gets more complicated. But when you're trying to run like an ad campaign or something like that, think of the same thing. You know, that when you're trying to compare uh, which pay-per-click terms are outperforming others, don't have other variables like, uh, but like radius or what city you're targeting and things like this thrown in there because what if that affected it instead of the terms you were trying to test out or the budget you're trying to test or the time of day. So change one variable at a time, see what works best and then move on to the next. It's called AB testing. And like I said, that's huge in marketing, but it can be used in all sorts of applications in business. So I'm kind of glad we touched on that, uh, on that. Okay. Anyways, let's move on. Like I said, I don't want to get too in the weeds about the vaccine thing. Cause I know it's a, a pretty passionate topic for a lot of people and I'm just kind of trying to steer wide as stuff like that on this podcast uh, for the time being. So New Zealand inflation surges to fastest pace in 10 years. I have been a huge proponent from the start of the COVID-19 pandemic as well, that you're going to see a ton of uh, uh, inflation. And I've kind of called that from the beginning with all the uh, grants and PPP loans and money that was created. I mean, the money supply uh, expanded in a huge fashion. Uh, debt exploded in pretty much every major country or every country around the world uh, just exploded in debt and started printing money during this crisis. And, you know, I, I was talking to you guys about the risk of stagflation in a previous episode and things, but I'm really continue to be convinced there's going to be inflation for, for a while here. And you kind of seen for, uh, from the start, that all the powers that be like the news and especially the fed and people like this were giving statements like, Oh, there won't be inflation. It's a temporary uh, spike and then it's going to recover. And then it was that, okay, yeah, there is inflation, but it's going to be transient. And now they're like, yeah, there might be some inflation for a while. <laughs> and I, you know, I've talked you know, before on this podcast about how the fed is trying to coach consumers into believing there won't be inflation when they're worried about overshooting their target. So oh, let me back it up for a second and clean this up a little bit. The Fed is, it, it, one of their key things is they try to control inflation. You want a little bit inf of inflation, 
so that prices increase. Because if prices don't increase, say prices were to decrease, then instead of buying the new iPhone today, you would you would logically as a consumer wait a month because in a month, the same product's going to be cheaper. That's deflation. And that's a nightmare because no one spends money. So no products get sold. So no one can employ anyone and invest in R&D. So the whole economy spir- spirals downward because consumers are waiting for the same item to get cheaper next month, next year, whatever, before they buy. Whereas a little bit of inflation, that means that products are constantly getting more expensive. So you're incentivized to buy today. Now, if there's like runaway inflation that can damage the economy and that's a really bad thing. So you don't want explosive inflation, but you do want a little bit of inflation. So in the United States, our target for inflation is 2%. So if you aren't increasing your income by 2% each year, your money's getting less valuable each year and you're actually not, you're effectively losing purchasing power. You're effectively not making the same money as the year prior. Uh, and that's an important thing to understand because now inflation is above that target. It's like at 5% and change compared to a year ago. Uh, because products have gotten more expensive because of supply chain uh, breaks, but also I think because consumers got a lot of money in their pockets from saving during COVID-19 and all this uh, money getting created. So anyways, uh, all that inflation starting to come home, but the Fed is wanting to hit the 2% target. Right now it's at 5% or could be even higher or moving higher. So the Fed's trying to coach everyone to believe that it's going to be transient. It's going to be temporary. It's going to go away because if you believe that as a consumer, you start to act that way and it becomes true. If you want to read more about that, it's a theory called reflexivity uh, in markets. And it's a really interesting thing to understand. But basically, if you convince consumers something's going to be true, then collectively those consumers make it more likely to be true or even make it a self-fulfilling prophecy because they'll behave on that in such a way that makes it come true. So the Fed tries to do that. They've been trying to downplay inflation. I really believe it's continued to be high. That's why like a year ago or 18 months ago when all this, uh, these government money was being printed and all these programs are being created. I was really coaching all my listeners. I said, listen, guys, this is a great time to get hard assets, uh, stay invested X, Y, Z, because everything's going to get, uh, you're going to see inflation. It's going to affect everything from asset inflation, stocks to houses, et cetera. And that was advice I gave on this podcast. I can't give investing advice. This podcast for entertainment purposes only, but that was what I thought was uh, the best way to position myself during the pandemic. And what I was talking about in this podcast a lot. Well, if you'd done that, when I was talking about it, you would have done brilliantly. Like I, I upgraded my house and housing prices in Phoenix anyways, have gone up like 30 to 35%. Uh, my house is no exception. And I think I bought it kind of well as a side note, but it, it's done just brilliantly. Uh, my old house that I sold, for example, the the new owners flipped it for 25% higher than I sold it to them for like 10 months later. It's just insane what's happened to the housing market, particularly in Phoenix. Uh, but having hard assets in an inflationary environments a really good way to be positioned because all those things are going to be worth more. Um, so uh, where was I going with this? Oh yeah. So with with inflation, I'd really pay attention to what's happening there because it's starting to affect every nation around the world. And the worst thing you can do is, is to be sitting in cash because like they're saying now, like even in New Zealand, they're seeing inflation surge at the fastest pace in 10 years. Well, this is going to be a reality everywhere. If you're sitting in cash or a cash equivalent, then the inflation is going to eat up that purchasing power I was talking about earlier. So you got to get invested. You got to get in hard assets. If you believe like I believe that there's going to be inflation around the corner, even if these asset prices are kind of high and it's a difficult call right now, admittedly, I mean, the inflation is a very real risk. You need to factor into your whole model for the way that you're investing and what you're doing with your money. So anyways, that's just my two cents. Again, this podcast for entertainment purposes only, and I can't give investment advice and this shouldn't be misconstrued as investment advice, but that's the way I've been handling my personal portfolio during all this. And so far it's been good. 
again, you should, you know, like my personal finance podcast talk about, you need to have a big emergency fund that gets you through. Like I have like 18 months of emergency fund now, but you, at least six to 12 months, something like that. Uh, so that you can get through any crunches and don't have to sell those assets, but eventually, you know, conservative investments recover, even if you bought them at a peak and you can look up countless articles about accidentally buying the S and P 500 or whatever the peak, and then it recovers over time. So anyways, let's move on to the next article. trillion in crisis savings stay hoarded by wary consumers. So that's interesting. So there's where people saved more money during the crisis, which is a big part of this, that consumers started to stock away more cash and there's still cash on the sidelines. So that is really bullish for markets as well, that if that cash starts to come off the sidelines, if these quote unquote wary consumers start to believe that their job is stable and the economy is stable and we get through the pandemic okay and finally beat down the Delta variant and all these things, then they might start spending or investing that money again. So there's a lot of money in reserve, uh, which means if they get confident, they start to spend it. Now that's bad if they stay wary, but if they, if there's some good positive signals, that means there's a lot of cash on the sidelines that could get deployed and we could see another leg up in this bull market. So that's kind of my take on that. Um, Let's see what else we got. Bill Clinton back home after hospitalization from infection. He did not have COVID-19 apparently, at least in the article I'd read yesterday, it said that uh, the former president of the United States, Bill Clinton was hospitalized, but it was just some other infection. And now he's back home. So that's really good. And I'm glad that he's recovering and wish him all the best. You got to put politics aside. Even if you, if you know, it's another politician or someone in a competing party or something, you don't want to wish ill on any of these. I mean, they're still human beings, right? So you know, keep some of that hate out of your heart when someone like that gets sick. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big job and a selfish job to take. And even, even if you don't agree with what they did on it, keep perspective that, you know, your fellow Americans did. And that's why he got into power. And uh, we got to respect that, all of our presidents, I think. And I think a lot of that's going by the wayside. My advice to all of you is to keep a little perspective and don't get sucked in too much to all this hate that's going on in politics these days. It really bothers me. And uh, even if you don't necessarily agree, agree with Bill Clinton or whatever, wish him well, you know, that we want all these people to be healthy and happy, still human beings at the end of the day. Let's see. Next article, Zillow pauses home purchases as snags hit high tech power flipping. That's interesting because Zillow was getting criticized. Everyone thought they were buying houses for too much money, like too high a valuation, which like I said earlier in the podcast, if your housing prices are going up 30% year over year, you look like a genius, even if you overpaid 5% for any given house. Uh, But if the market turns against them, that could be a really bad position to be in. So here's them kind of slowing down. Those guys know a lot about the market. I would pay attention. If you're thinking about buying a home, you need to look at some factors like that because that could be a signal that they think, you know, it could be nothing. It could just be that they got overextended and overzealous and are trying to rein back some of those purchases. But it might also be that they think the housing market's going to turn a bit and that they're going to look smart for buying later. So I'd pay attention to what some of those people do. Netflix estimates Squid Game will be worth almost 900 million. Ooh, if you guys have not seen Squid Game, it is a hot recommendation for me. I, I know it's everyone's talking about it and it's the buzz. Ooh, but I love it. So I highly recommend checking out uh, Squid Game. I think it's just such a great show. It's almost like a battle royale style thing. And it's about like people who are in debt in Korea, South Korea, uh, go to this game that rich people put on and watch them like fight for their lives, essentially. And sometimes fighting each other, sometimes playing against a game that'll kill them if they mess up or lose. And it's like they're playing children's games, a series of them until there's just one winner who takes home like a huge cash prize. It's a crazy show, kind of some social commentary, but is really well done. Hard recommend. I really, really enjoyed it. Really good. It was pretty violent, but I think most of my viewership from what I gleaned is young, predominantly male, things like this. You guys will love that. So check it out. Um, 
Let's see. Next thing, Apple's MacBook Pro overhaul poised to be to finally be quote unquote unleashed. I'm excited about that. I always use a MacBook Pro personally. Uh, so I'll buy whatever <laughs> that one is. But I'm terrible about that with Apple products. It's like, if it's one of the products I use, like a watch, an iPhone, an iPad, I just buy whatever the most recent one is. And I'm always glad I do. I know some people think, oh, you know, it's smart and it's pretty much the same as the last one. Let's just wait. But I just love it. Oh, I'm surprised by this. Halloween Kills, which is a movie, topples James Bond to take box office crown. I saw, I'm, I'm a diehard James Bond fan. And I thought No Time to Die, the new James Bond movie, was incredible. I loved it. So that's another big recommend. Daniel Craig's been my favorite Bond of all time, but I grew up watching those movies, even the old school ones I used to watch. Well, before Brosnan and stuff, which were the ones getting released when I was a kid. Uh, but I just love them, love them, love them, love them. So, uh, I high, hot recommend for James Bond. It's interesting that Halloween kills is beating them. I'm gonna have to go check that out. I didn't really grow up on the horror flicks and Halloween and stuff like that, but, uh, I like them. My girlfriend loves horror movies and, you know, always fun around Halloween to get in the mood a bit with them. So I think I'm gonna check them out. SEC set to allow Bitcoin futures ETFs as deadline looms. This is really bullish for cryptocurrency. Uh, that's another thing that's been some hot podcasts for me. It gets a lot of interest from you guys, my listenership. But uh, I, I've started investing in cryptocurrency most in earnest earlier this year, and my portfolio has been doing brilliantly. It's really been exploding. It's been one of the most volatile asset classes I've ever been a part of. But I've done previous podcasts where I talked about, you know, in my investment strategy, and again, I can't give investment advice, it's a podcast for entertainment purposes only, but uh, I was really buying the networks. So think like Ethereum. I bought a little bit of like Solana, which exploded this year. I think I made like five times my money on that. Um, Cardano is another one, Polkadot. Those are big networks that the other coins are being built on. Think like buying the app store instead of buying an individual app is kind of an analogy. So if you own Ethereum, it's like you own the app store and they're growing and getting a percentage of all the coins that are developed on their network because they give infrastructure and the tools and they have a lot of use and safety. That's a very gross simplification, but that's kind of the high level way to think about it. So I've really uh, advocated for the networks, especially Ethereum. I'm most bullish of, on Ethereum of any cryptocurrency. It's my biggest allocation now. Uh, and actually, is, uh, it's grown to be bigger allocated than uh, um, Bitcoin, in fact. And I'm so bullish on it that I staked it, which is where it's going to give me like a 5% yield because I did it through Coinbase, which I, I know, calm down. I know it's, it's all you crypto deep people. I know it's not the efficient way that I could get 8% if I you know, figured out all this technical stuff. I'm not going to do that. So this was the easy way for me to do it. Uh, so I did 5% in my Coinbase, or I get 5% return in my Coinbase on my Ethereum, and it's grown to be my biggest stake now. It's what I have the most cryptocurrency allocated to. Bitcoin, I still like. I mean, tech-wise, it's kind of getting a uh, um, push down in, in the cryptocurrency fan club that the cryptocurrency diehards aren't loving Bitcoin as much as they used to. I mean, it's still very useful. I think it's still, I'm still bullish on it. I still uh, have, have a decent chunk. I mean, there's a big chunk of my, as a percentage of my crypto portfolio is allocated to Bitcoin. Uh, again, Ethereum's the biggest, then Bitcoin. And, you know, I like the, the prospects for Bitcoin right now. I don't know if it's a 20, 30 year play. Although it's hard for me to imagine it goes away. It's, it's kind of, I've talked about before on my uh, cryptocurrency podcast, which you guys should check out if you want to learn more. But I think that Bitcoin is going to continue to be kind of the store of value, the gold standard in cryptocurrency and almost like the quote unquote gateway drug. 
that institutional investors, maybe even like big corporations will put it on its balance sheet before they'll put something like Ethereum, even though I like Ethereum more. It's almost like you don't learn about Ethereum until you buy a little Bitcoin. It's kind of when you think cryptocurrency, most people think Bitcoin. So it kind of becomes their first purchase. And that means it still has some legs up as cryptocurrency gets more adopted, in my opinion. So, you know, I'm, I've got some Bitcoin. I like it. Uh, I'm going to continue to hold it for the time being. And I'll, I'll probably give you guys an update on one of my podcasts. If my mind changes, I don't think it's tech is as good, but it, it's still the 800 pound gorilla or whatever that saying is. So really interesting. MicroStrategy's Bitcoin bet doubles to 6 billion as price source. MicroStrategy is like this publicly traded corporation. And what's that guy's name who runs it? He's like a huge, uh, Michael Saylor, that's his name. And he's like a, a huge advocate for Bitcoin. And he's basically turned this company into like a de facto Bitcoin investment. Cause instead of like having tons of products and stuff, they basically uh, have all their money and Bitcoin on their balance sheet and it's just growing. So anyways, uh, the enterprise software firm held approximately 114,042 Bitcoin as of September 12th, acquired at an aggregate purchase price of 3.16 billion. Wow. And an average price of 27,713 per to token. The investment is now worth 6.7 billion. What, what is, I bet he's feeling smart. Uh, that's just incredible. Um, Michael Saylor, the founder and chief executive of MicroStrategy, began buying Bitcoin in August 2020, saying that it was better to hold the cryptocurrency on the balance sheet rather than cash or low-yielding U.S. securities, as most companies tend to. While controversial, the strategy was later adopted by Tesla, Square, Tesla Inc. and Square Inc., helping to boost the price of Bitcoin to a record high in April. Now it's rebounded like crazy. He's saying that Bitcoin's the new gold. So that's it saying that it's like a digital store of value, which I kind of buy. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine my generation and younger buying a bunch of gold versus something like Bitcoin when they want to have a store of value and a hedge against inflation. This is kind of where my generation and younger is turning. So I'm still bullish on Bitcoin. Let's see if there's any other interesting things that really stand out. Facebook says AI will clean up the platform. Its own engineers have doubt. AI has only minimal success in removing hate speech, violent images, and other problem content, according to internal company reports. It can't consistently identify first-person shooting videos, racist rants, or gruesome car crashes. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Facebook's under a ton of scrutiny lately. And I've switched to the Wall Street Journal now, by the way. But they're on a ton of uh, uh, scrutiny, as this Wall Street Journal article is saying for the content on their site. And they're starting to hold like Facebook and Twitter and these big social media platforms accountable for what the content is and for quote unquote accurate information. And this really started around the 2016 election with Donald Trump, where uh, uh, there was like the Russia misinformation campaigns. Well, stuff like that's always been going on where other you know countries are trying to influence other countries' uh, elections. But it became very controversial in this particular one uh, where he beat or Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton because they, they thought that those uh, Russian campaigns or whatever had a big impact with misinformation where they were just creating these articles that are like clickbait that made these wild claims that, you know, largely weren't true or whatever uh, about the opponent. And it kind of cut both ways. I mean, like there, there's obviously articles that cut every mis, you know misinformation that cuts every direction across the political spectrum and across every subject really on these sites. But this was very controversial because you know lots of people uh, felt it affected the election. And since then, Facebook's kind of been in the hot seat about content. I really, really uh, disagree with that. 
I don't like that. And I, I worry about that precedent. I don't think that Facebook and companies like that should be responsible for the content on their site largely, to be honest. I know that's kind of a controversial statement nowadays, but I think they have a duty to be a platform that's equal opportunity when it comes to like posts and awareness and things. And then it, it needs to be almost like a public platform where they don't get involved in policing content. So I think it's a very slippery slope for both sides that if you let them start making judgment and ethical calls or moral judgments about what content's good or what should be shown or what's quote unquote misinformation, then you have these people deciding the whole narrative. These have become really powerful sources and I don't think that they should be manipulated in ways that consumers aren't aware of uh, that presents a, a slanted version of what people are posting or what, what the actual truth is. And I think letting them be the arbiters of truth is a really dangerous thing. Cause then whoever controls Facebook or whoever influences those people uh, controls the narrative. And that's a really scary power for big tech to have. So uh, as a freedom of speech person and some libertarian leanings, I really don't like that that precedent. They're trying to quote unquote, clean up their platform using AI. I think that's particularly dangerous. I mean, I get why they'd want to do it because then they can point and say, oh, look, it's a robot that decided to take down the post instead of a human uh, who might have like a political leaning or something. But I mean, AI can be manipulated and dealing with the AI of these tech companies is really frustrating. I mean, like uh, I think most of us experience that these big tech companies don't have helplines and things like that. So if your account gets hacked or deleted, you know, it's really difficult to navigate and figure out a way to, to fix that. Um, and they try to use AI for like uh, deciding if ads should be approved or not on Google. And it's really, really sloppy in my experience. I mean, it rejects a lot of our legitimate ads for my uh, healthcare business that I own and run. And uh, it's a really frustrating thing to deal with. I mean, I just, I don't think AI is the right way to police these platforms or to police content. It's really sloppy and, and ill done, I think. So I have my doubts as well. And apparently their, their own programmers say that AI won't work for fixing it. Uh, unions push companies as workers stay scarce. This is interesting. There's a huge labor shortage right now in the United States. And for a variety of factors, there's a ton of, uh, labor starting to push for higher wages and things, which I'm, I'm a proponent of, I got to tell you, like I'm a proponent for a high minimum wage. The minimum wage when it's first created, didn't get indexed for inflation, which I think is just one of the stupidest things ever. So the purchasing power from minimum wage when it was first created is way higher, something like 50% higher than it is today because it didn't index for inflation. So, so I think it's time for a minimum wage bump. And I think workers are starting to demand a better lifestyle and rightfully so. I think the wealth inequality is a huge issue in, in the United States and in the world. And, and uh, um, I think it's something we got to square with. And now you're starting to see unions push in because uh, it's hard for companies to hire workers. And it is, it's very difficult for us right now to hire people. And what that's done is it's forced us to step up our game. I and mean, we have to tell our story better. We have to create a better work environment. You have to pay right, which I'm really proud. I think my company always has. And we have a really good package together, uh, especially for our clinical staff and things like this. But uh, um, anyways, you know, that's just to say that it is getting more competitive for companies. And here you're starting to see unions push into that space, which is really interesting. See if there's anything else to highlight. Few cars to sell. What do salespeople do all day? That's interesting. Salespeople who once spent days offering test drives now scout for online leads and explain the sh chip shortage to frustrated customers. So they're kind of doing more like uh, interference instead of features and things like this because there's such a shortage of cars right now that everyone's just buying everything. I mean, used car prices have gone through the roof. It's nearly impossible to get a new car. And if you do, you can flip it for more money than you paid for in most cases. It's pretty crazy uh, market out there right now in general. And that kind of speaks to what I, what I said earlier with um, um, inflation fears and things like this. I really think that could continue to come true and be a bigger and bigger issue.
So on that note, I think I'm going to wrap up this uh, uh, news rundown. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. I know there's a lot of great ways to entertain yourself, not the least of which are a bunch of great podcasts. So thank you for taking the time to listen to little old me. Uh, you can reach me on Instagram at the Blackwood show and feel free to DM me. I'm going to be doing more listener questions and posts on there. So uh, send me a line if there's something you want me to talk about. And thank you again. Appreciate y'all. I hope you have a great week. Peace.